Good evening. It's great to see you. Warm welcome. My name is James. I lead the team here at New Community and uh, so thrilled to see you tonight. We are starting tonight a new series in the book of James. If you have your Bible with you, James is towards the end of the New Testament and it's uh, really an appropriate moment for us to be studying this book as today we multiplied again as a church. We launched our third venue over in Welling just earlier. I was just there a few hours ago. It was a real uh, successful launch. It went really, really well. And we're, uh, it's an appropriate moment as we multiply again to be looking at this book. This book, James, was written by a guy called James who was the uh, half-brother of Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. And uh, you might think growing up with Jesus, you would kind of immediately believe everything that Jesus said and follow Jesus and and be a disciple of Jesus. But if you imagine for a moment your half-brother growing up with your half-brother who told you he was God, how you would respond, and that was pretty much the way James responded to Jesus. Okay. And uh, he didn't follow him. He wasn't a disciple. In fact, he mocked him. He was one of the family members who turned up to try and seize Jesus because they thought he'd lost his mind, because they thought he was mad. And then um, then later, James did decide to follow Jesus. He became a Christian. He became a disciple of Jesus. And he ended up leading the church in Jerusalem. What changed James's mind was not seeing Jesus growing up, but was seeing Jesus nailed to a cross and dying and laying in a grave. And three days later, he rose to new life in Christ, resurrected from the dead, and that changed everything for Jesus. Uh, for James. It changed everything for Jesus as well. For James. And James ended up leading uh, the church in Jerusalem, a church that this letter is written to at a point when it had been scattered throughout the ancient world, planting churches, multiplying, and growing. And we read from James chapter 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, that's the diaspora, that's the scattered communities. This church had been scattered out, and he just says, greetings. James just is quite blunt. Hello, this is me, let's go. Count it all as joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 
This letter is a fascinating insight into what was being taught to a church that changed the world. This was a group of people from Jerusalem, and the gospel, if you read through the book of Acts, went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this was the church. This was the kind of stuff. This book, this letter, was the kind of stuff that was being taught to that church as they were scattered, as they multiplied. And as you read through the book of James, it feels an awful lot like a whole bunch of commands. Do this, do that, now this and that. And it seems to jump around all over the place. But underlying this whole book of James is an understanding of who God is. And James understands that when we get who God is, that then propels us forward and changes the way we behave. So when we're just told, do this or do that, it's kind of like, no, don't go on the grass. I want to go on the grass. I was in Welling earlier, and there's got these big pot plants outside a shop, and it says, do not sit on the plants. Why anyone would ever think to sit on the plants, I have no idea. But there was a sign there, so instinctively, I just wanted to sit on the plants. If you're told, do this or don't do that, there's something in us that goes, I want to do it. I want to go and do that. I want to go and do this. But that's not the way Christianity works. It's not do this, don't do that, do that. Yes, of course, there are instructions, but they're all grounded in. They're all rooted in an understanding of who God is. You see, when you understand who God is, when you have a full view of who God is, it propels you forward. If our biggest problem in the West is that we have, even as Christians, a deficient view of who God is. And so we think that God is kind of not all that he claims to be. And so what happens when we don't really fully understand who God is and we don't really grasp it is that bad things, pain and trial and difficulty comes and we end up doubting. Or temptation comes and and we give in and we end up blaming. Or we just look at life and and frankly, we're never really satisfied We're always chasing life. We're always striving. We're always looking for comparing ourselves to others and and chasing this dream moment. And if we're honest, we never say this in church, but if we're honest, we can sometimes feel like, well, God's kind of holding me back from what I really want. I've got all these desires. I've got this life. That's what I want to do. I want to do all this stuff. But being a Christian means I just can't do all of that. And what ends up happening is we kind of think that God's some kind of killjoy. I think he's dull, a bit boring. And if you're, if you're not a Christian here tonight and that's your opinion of God based on Christians and how they behave, well, I'm sorry about that. Like straight up sorry that a whole bunch of Christians walk around looking with their faces looking like they forgot their souls got saved. That, that, that's not an issue to do with God. That's an issue to do with them, all right? And, and hang around with people who at least smile. That's a kind of general principle. And Christians who smile, well, they're the ones who should should, in theory, understand who God is. You see, God's not this killjoy. He's not this dull kind of dragging you back, stopping you from having life. No, no, no. God is this all-powerful, holy, majestic, awesome God who is interested in you. And he delights in you. And what he wants for you is to lead you into the deepest, fullest, richest, most abundant life imaginable. He's not a killjoy. He's the author of life. He's not a thief stealing life from us. He is giving us life and giving us joy and giving us pleasure. Verse 17 is the key verse that underpins everything throughout this whole letter. He is the father of lights from whom every good gift and every perfect gift comes. There's no variation or shadow or change in him. He's sovereign. He's the creator. He made everything. Father of lights. He's dependable. He doesn't change. Everything in our world changes. He doesn't. And he's gracious. 
verse 18, with the first fruits of his creatures. He gives new birth. We're new creations in Christ Jesus now. The old's gone, the new's come. Everything's changed. And that changes the way we live. When we don't understand who God really is, we go through all the stuff this life has to offer and we end up not living in the fullness of everything that God wants. But when we do get who God is, it changes our approach to everything. Three things that we're going to just look at tonight, real quick. First one is the understanding, a right and correct revelation of who God is transforms our view of trial and pain. When we go through trial and pain and suffering and hardship, we all do at some point, our natural inclination is to begin to doubt. Doubt God's goodness, doubt God's wisdom, doubt God's power. Like, well, maybe he's not all of this kind of stuff. James understands that. And in verse 2, he says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. When, not if. Nothing plagues, nothing plagues Christians worse than this, thinking, come to Jesus, all your problems go away. Everything will be right ever again. Because it won't. He says, when, when, not if. We're all going to hit trials, big ones, small ones, long ones, short ones. And he says, when you do, count it all as joy. That doesn't mean walk around with a big cheesy grin on our face, pretending it's, it's putting our happy faces on and going, hey, it's okay, it's not that bad really. No, 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 it really is that bad. Jesus in John chapter 11, when he's with Martha and Mary because their brother Lazarus has just died, he doesn't rock up to him and go, hey guys, count it all as joy, happy face time, it's all good. No, no, no. He weeps with them and he snorts in anger and grief as he stands by the grave. We weep with those who are weeping. But James says, count it all as joy. It doesn't mean happy face time. It means consider it. Look at it. Get a new perspective on it. Try and get your head around deliberately and consciously what God is doing in you and through you and for you in this. James says, I want you to see that in your trial, when you face it, if you hold on to God and if you allow God to hold on to you, it can turn things into something good. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That word steadfastness, it's like perseverance. It's like hold fast, stand firm. Verse four, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, pain and trial and hardship, what's it doing in us? It's producing character in us. It's producing perseverance in us. It's putting us in situations that are not easy to continue and not easy to keep going. But in the end, if we do, we will be made perfect. Not perfect in sinless perfection, like everything about me is absolutely perfect now, but in a sense of a fully matured character. And that's what we all want, right? We want to grow into a fully matured character. None of us want to stay immature. We want to have more wisdom. We want to have more understanding. We want to grow up into those things. And James says trials are the thing that give us that opportunity. We can't get there without them. And he says, I want you to consider the fact. Consider it. Count it as joy. That your trials and the pain and the hardship are the means by which you are going to grow. And the thing is, we hit trials and we begin to doubt. It's kind of un- it's understandable. Because we don't have the wisdom that God has. And we don't have the understanding that God has. And we don't have the perspective that God has. 
And we struggle. And James says here in verse 5, when you struggle through the trial, when you lack wisdom and understanding and you need strength, verse 5, ask for it. Ask for wisdom. Ask for help. Ask for strength because God gives generously. He's not mean and tight-fisted and stingy. He wants to give his grace to you. He wants to give wisdom to you. And God gives it to all. There's not like first-class and second-class Christians. And if you're in the first-class branch, then you get, it's not like you get on an aeroplane. You know when you get on a plane and you, like if you're anything like me, you get on that plane and you look left and you think, oh, if only, and you end up going right. Because the air hostess, she doesn't even bother looking at my ticket. She just goes that way. And you, and you end up going through into cattle class and you sit down there and there's that brief moment where everything's still open and you see like the champagne being poured out in first class and then the curtain gets pulled over and you're like, and you're just left going, ah, have you got any water? And in first class, they've got this whole amazing setup thing Listen, that's that's not the Christian life. And so many people think it is. Well, I'm a right turn. I'm cattle class. Only the good ones, they get the first class treatment from God. No, 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 no. There's no first class, second class, third class, any other class. You stand here before God. God graciously wanting to give to anyone. And he gives without finding fault. He gives without finding fault. He's not looking at you going, oh man, I made a mistake when I saved that one. If they could just pull themselves together, if they could just sort this, this, and this out, then I would be there, but they can't. They're useless. Oh, what was I thinking? Why did I do it? No, no, no. He's not disappointed in you. He didn't make a mistake when he saved you. He doesn't regret it in any way, shape, or form. He wants to pour out his wisdom and his grace and his mercy to strengthen you. But here's the thing, we're told here in verse 6, we have to ask for it. It doesn't just automatically come, have to ask him for it. And we have to ask in faith. Not doubting, not being double-minded. Now what that means is really important because sometimes we read that and go, well, I've got a bit of doubt, I can't ask. That's not what it means. There's elsewhere in scripture where we see where Jesus heals the guy and this guy's son in Mark chapter 9. And the guy says, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Jesus doesn't go, what do you mean your unbelief? Forget you, park you on that side. No, no, no. He says, yes, of course. It's not about having to have 100% absolute certainty. I've got a little bit of doubt. Can I really ask? That's not what it means here. Doubt and double-minded here means I'm not going to be divided in my loyalties. It means I'm not going to ask God for him to help me in this. And at the same time, I'm going to go and read the self-help books and work it all out myself. I'm not going to trust God with this and put one foot on him. And at the same time, have one foot in the world and look for their answers and the world's wisdom. And I'm going to hedge my bets. If that doesn't work out, I've got this. That's what it means to not be double-minded. How many of us do that? Just hedge our bets. Well, just one foot on God. Trust in. But just to be on the safe side, I'll, I'll pursue that here as well. And the problem with that is, is that God, the Bible tells us, is the rock upon which we stand. And anything else is like sand. And when the rains come and the flood comes, trial, pain, hardship, it crumbles away and you fall. And it's only by standing on the rock that you get to stand first, stand firm. And we're able to stand firm, not because of our abilities, not because of our strength, not because of our wisdom, but because we stand on the rock looking fully at Jesus, not to the left or the right, 
With our eyes fixed on him, we ask for wisdom. And as we do, he graciously gives us it. And he reminds us of what we already know about God. That he is steadfast in his loving kindness towards us. That he has already shown himself to be that. He's already shown himself to be faithful when he saved us. And so he will show himself to be faithful when we need him in the trial and in the pain. He loves us and he does not forsake us or his promises. This old story written by Tolkien, the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings. It's a different story. And it's about a great warrior named Hurin. And Hurin and his friends are in this great battle against evil forces. And on this mountain and they're getting beaten. And the only way in which they can save the people is for the people to, to leave and flee. And they retreat to this little gap on the mountain. And Hurin and his brother and a bunch of other warriors stand in this gap as the enemy comes and everyone else goes. And they decide they're going to stand steadfast. They're going to persevere. They're going to stand there. No one shall pass. And one by one, they're all killed off until it's just hurrying. And the sun goes down and it's pitch black. And he throws away his shield and he has his axe and he swings it. And he says, I don't care what suffering comes. I don't care what pain comes at me. I'm not budging. I'm going to suffer steadfastly here for my good and for the good of those who are behind me. And every time an enemy comes, he swings his axe and he says, day shall come again. And another one comes and he says, day shall come again. And another one, 70 times we're told. He swings his axe, day shall come again. And his name was Hurin the Steadfast. It's a steadfast love that stands firm. It's a great illustration of standing firm for, the good, for my good and the good of those behind me. Day shall come of what it is to stand firm in the face of pain and suffering. But it's not a perfect illustration. Because a far better illustration is Hebrews 12. Where it says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Who for the joy set before him, endured, persevered, stood firm on the cross. He endured the cross. He endured all the weight of eternal justice for sin coming down on him. All the punishment that we deserve for everything we ever did coming down on him. And as it was coming down on him on the cross, in the greatest act of love in the history of the world, he stood fast. He did not budge. And as a result, God can forgive us and receive us. And so now when your life is getting dark, when things are getting bad, you can stand fast out of love, out of a revelation and understanding of who God is and what he has done for you. And that's the key. When pain and trial comes, you can't just stand there and go, well, actually, I know that this is going to grow me into something good. That will last you for a little while, but ultimately, it's not going to work out for you because what you really need to be able to do is stand fast saying, I can stand fast. Out of love for the one who stood fast for me, I'm going to stand fast for him. And because my life is hidden in Christ, I shall not be crushed. Or to put it this way, no matter how dark it gets, No matter how bad your life is getting, we can say day shall come again, and it will. See, either the darkness will lift now or it's eventually going to lift because Jesus is going to make the whole world right. And we can say day shall come again, but know that it is because years ago Jesus stood when the sun went down and he stood fast for you. And now your life is hidden in him and so you can stand fast if you are in Christ. And the only way we stand fast is not to back off and, and kind of go, well, I'll take it on myself. And we so often go, me and my faith. No, no, no. The way to stand firm is to fix our eyes on Jesus and recognize that it's 
about us and our faith and we need to be in community with one another, encouraging one another, lifting one another up in, in prayer and support and saying, remember who Jesus is. Remember who this God is who came through for you once, who rescued you once. He will come through for you again. He will deliver you again. That's how you stand firm. See, seeing who God really is transforms the way we view trials but it also transforms the way we view temptation. We all get tempted, right? And when we do, there is a big temptation to pass blame somewhere. And verse 13 says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. See, as human beings, we are really good at shifting the blame when we do something that we shouldn't. We're really good at shifting the blame onto someone else. It's someone else's fault when things don't go as they should or when we sin or when we mess up or when we do something we shouldn't. And whether we outright lie and blame somebody else for it or whether we blame somebody else in order to justify the way that for our bad behavior or our sin, we, all, we are excellent at deflecting and blaming and passing on fault to someone else. I, we see it in kids all the time. I see it, <laughs> I got three kids. See it in my kids all the time. One of them is brutally honest. Whether you want him to be or not, he's brutally honest. He just tells you exactly like it is. Other one, not so honest at all. And so you sit in the situation, why do you do that? And he'll say, I didn't do that. Say, no, I, I saw you do that. Why do you do it? Not really. No, yes, really. You're two years old. I'm an adult. I'm having this conversation with you. I watched you do it. I'm asking you why you did it. Not really. No, you did, you can't, and then you get to the point, you go, it wasn't me, it was her, <laughs> and blames his sister or his other brother. I'm like, no, 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 that's not how it works. I, oh, I'm give up, blames. The other one, who's brutally honest, he will own what he does outright. You did that? Yeah, I did. Oh, that's not why, okay. <laughs> why did you do it? And brutally honest, immediately beginning to blame someone else, he goes, well, you're really boring, and I wanted to have some fun, that's why I did it. <laughs> Thanks. Either way around, we can giggle about it, but the reality is we do that all the time as adults. We instinctively blame someone else. It's theirs. It was their fault. Or we justify it as well. It's because that happened when we do something we shouldn't. See it in the Bible. Adam and Eve, right at the beginning. There's three people in this story, Adam, Eve, and God. Right? Only three, and one of them's God. And God says, why, Adam, did you eat that fruit? And immediately Adam goes, well, she made me. It was her fault. And then he turns to God and says, and actually, you made her, so that's your fault, not me. That doesn't work out so well for you when there's only three of you and one of you's God in that situation. But we often don't think. We just blame immediately. We pass off our instinct. Oh, no, no, it's not my fault. It's God's fault. You're sitting here tonight going, I don't think I ever blame God for anything. Oh, yeah, we do. How many times in our generation do we hear things like, well, God gave me this desire, so how can it be wrong? Not my fault. I'm like this. God made me. I can do God put this desire in me. He, he wants me to be happy, right? So I'm just doing how God made me. He made me this way. So I have this desire for this lifestyle or this person or this situation or whatever it is. Not my fault, God's fault. And James says, no, 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 no. You can't do that. When you sin, don't try and blame God. He's not a tempter. He's not responsible for the sinful things that we do. He's not putting obstacles in our way and trying to trip us up. He's not trying to catch us out. He's not waiting for us to fall and go, gotcha. He's a gift giver. In fact, he's the gift giver. Don't blame God. It's not God who tempts us. Look at verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't be deceived. Don't be tricked into thinking it's God's fault. It's not God's fault. Well, God made it. No, he didn't. James says, the issue is your desire. It's our desire. And desire starts small, but then it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it grows up, kills. I was reading this week some stories of when pets or animals that people keep as pets attack and kill. It was a fun story. And uh, I was reading a story of a guy called Marius Ells, who's a South African farmer, who decided to keep and raise a baby hippo as a pet. (laughs) Now, he raised the hippo. He called this hippo Humphrey. And uh, he nurtured this hippo from a young age and cared for him. And he described Humphrey as like a son to him. The problem was, Humphrey the hippo didn't stay all that small and cute. He grew up into a huge, terrifying 1,200 kg giant animal. And Marius Ells was so comfortable with him, he thought that he had him under control. He didn't see what everybody else could see, that hippos are dangerous. In fact, in South Africa, hippos kill more people than any other wild animal. They're that dangerous. And one day, Humphrey turns round, little Humphrey, and charges Marius and kills him. And his body's found submerged in a river that runs through his estate. What James is saying is that when it's very small, you think it doesn't matter. And when it gives birth to sin, you still think, well, okay, it's not ideal. I should, probably shouldn't really be doing this. It's probably not honoring of God. But I've got it under control, so it's okay. I've got it covered. It's okay. It's not the best thing. It's not exactly what I should be doing. But I got it sorted. I got it covered. And James says, no, you haven't. Because once it's given birth to sin, if you don't kill it, it will kill you because it will grow up and it will get you. Don't blame God. He's not tempting you. We're allowing our desires to tempt ourselves. That's why as Christians, we're about more than just our external behavior. Our external attitude, our external behavior, yeah, it's important, but it's nowhere near as important as what is cultivated in our desires, a desire for godliness. When I discipline my children, they get disciplined more severely for bad attitude than they do for bad behavior. Because I'm trying to cultivate in them an attitude that is godly and honoring. I'm less concerned when they hit each other than I am about the bad attitude that precedes everything else. And that's why as Christians we're more concerned about what's going on inside us than our external attitude. Yes, of course our external behavior matters. But if I'm just doing the right things and being a good Christian and yet I'm not cultivating something that is godly on the inside, then that thing is going to grow up and it's going to kill me. God's not a tempter. He's the gift giver. And this is, just changes everything for us. It transforms how we view life. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Everything good comes from God. And everything good that comes from God is a gift And we generally don't do very well at understanding gifts. We tend to think of of gifts as being something that we get as a reward. So someone gives us a gift, God gives us a gift, he gives us something, and we kind of view it as a reward. And we're like, oh yeah, of course, I did deserve that. Thank you very much. And we like that all the time. If you think about how we view other people, I mean, we look at them and they think, wow, they're really gifted. They've got these great gifts. And, And kind of what we really mean by that is they must be better than me in some way. 
Now, clearly, it may well be they've got, they're really gifted at something, that they've been really diligent in it. They've worked really hard. They've, they've cultivated a good attitude towards it. But at the end of the day, what they've worked diligently in is developing in something that was a gift to begin with. It wasn't their hard work and doing. It was all given to them by God. We need to get a whole lot better at embracing gifts and, and saying to God, thank you for this gift. Thank you for it. I'm going to use it now for your glory. Here's the thing. If my dad gives me a fancy sports car, I mean like my earthly dad gives me a fancy sports car, it doesn't make me a great person. It just means I have a very generous dad. If I've got gifts that have been given by God, it doesn't necessarily, it's not a reward or a punishment. It's a gift from a very generous father. And when we start viewing everything like that, it changes everything. What sounds more humble? I heard a friend ask this question once. He's speaking on this, and he said, what sounds more humble and which so- what sounds more arrogant? I'm very gifted, or I've just worked very hard. What sounds more arrogant? What sounds more humble? Huh? I'm just very gifted, or I've just worked very hard. Now, the first one sounds way more arrogant. I'm just very gifted. Sounds incredibly arrogant, you big head. I'm just gifted. But actually, theologically speaking, I've just worked very hard is way more arrogant. But because we live in Britain, we, we tend to think the other way around. Think about it for a moment. Saying, I've worked very hard, hard work, it's all about me. Look how good I've done. I've done all of this. But saying I'm, I'm very gifted, that's a statement from God. It wasn't me. He gifted me with this. He gave me these abilities. It was not all on me and I deserve it and earn it. It's God. You see, it's actually quite arrogant to say, I've achieved what I've achieved because I've worked really hard. You probably have. But so have lots of other people. And the fact that you have been gifted with even geography of living here versus, let's say, somebody who lives in the third world who's probably worked a whole lot harder than you, but because you've got the gift of being lived here, that's purely a gift. You didn't choose it. You were gifted to be in this geography and this education and all the rest of it. You haven't necessarily worked a whole lot harder than somebody in the third world. So it's not like, well, it's all on me. No, no, no. It's a gift. And that changes everything. It changes our, transforms our approach to everything. We stop thinking, I have rights to certain things. I deserve this. Why do we get upset when things don't happen? Because we think we deserve it. When we recognize, actually, I don't deserve nothing. Everything is a gift. And when that frees us, we suddenly go, actually, that's not on me. That changes the way I now live. Everything I have, spiritual gifts, everything I have, material gifts, everything I have in natural gifts, I mean, literally everything that I have is a gift. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. And even if I had kind of worked hard money-wise to earn it, the fact that I'm able to have a job and do that job and work hard at it is because I was gifted in that particular thing anyway. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, what do, you, what do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? It's all a gift. Everything you have is a gift. And this changes everything. When we recognize God for who he really is as a gift giver, who lo- everything you have is a good and perfect gift from above, and he loves to give it to you, And you don't have to earn it, and you don't have to deserve it. It means we don't get bitter when we look at other people and think, oh, I wish I was like them. And we don't get smug when we go, they all wish they were like me, because it's all a gift. It all comes from him. That should free us up to being the most generous, the most fun, the most excited people on the planet, because we know we don't deserve it, and yet he gives us it all. Wow. I read a few years ago, 
a really brilliant article, and it's a little bit long, but I'm going to read the whole thing as we finish from a guy called N.D. Wilson talking about this. He says, we Christians are the speakers of light. We are the proclaimers of joy. Wherever we go, we are the mascots of the gospel, the images of the infinitely creative father and the younger brothers and sisters of the humbled and triumphant word. We speak in this world on behalf of the one who made up lightning and snowflakes and eggs. Or so we say. Saying things is easy. Meaning them in the realm of will and emotions is harder. Knowing what they actually mean is more difficult still. Living out who we, are, who we know we are and whom we follow with total consistency is, well, very difficult. Have you ever ridden a white whale by the light of a blue moon in a leap year? Hard work. We say we want to be like God, and we feel we mean it, but we don't. Not to be harsh, but if we did really mean it, we'd be having a whole lot more fun than we actually are. We aim for safety and cultural respectability instead of following our stated first principles that we are made in God's image and should strive to imitate him. A dolphin flipping through the sun beyond the surf, a falcon in a dive, a dog in the back of a truck flying his tongue like a flag of joy, all reflect the maker more holy than many of our endorsed thinkers, theologians, and churchgoers. Look over our day-to-day lives. How do we parent, for example? Rules. Fears, don'ts, don't jump on the couch, no gluten in this house, get down from that tree, quiet down, hold still, shh. We live as if God were an infinite list of negatives. He is holiness, the rawest and richest of all purity, but in our bent way of thinking, that makes him the biggest stress out of all. How does God parent? He gave us one rule at the beginning, you must not eat from that tree. Only one tree was held back. Besides, he was giving us an entire planet, a hot star, wild animals to discover and name and tame, animals with fangs and sinews that rippled in the sun. He gave us the dragon to beat that beat us instead, and then he stooped down to save. So now we have two rules. Love God, love others. Along with imputed righteousness, grace for our failures, and a door through the grave into eternal life, do we act like all of this is true? Our Father wove glory and joy into every layer of this world. He wove in secrets that would tease us into centuries of risk-taking before we could unlock them. Flight, glass, electricity, chocolate. He buried gold deep but scattered sand everywhere. And from the sands came the wealth of our own age. Our God made things simple and funny. Skin bags full of milk swinging beneath cows. And also hard. Skim the milk, add sugar from cane grass and shards of vanilla beans from faraway lands, surround with water cold enough to have expanded its molecules and become solid. Now stir, keep stirring, now taste and worship ice cream. Us, no more for you, Johnny, you've had enough. God, try the hot fudge. God hung easily picked fruit on trees and he hid the secrets of fine wine at the end of a scavenger hunt he made horses with strong flat backs lending themselves to an obvious use and he had hid jet wings behind the mysteries of steel and fossil fuels without any creative help at all god made peanuts and bulgy tubers squeeze out the peanut oil and boil it slice the tubers throw them in now add salt from the sea us those will kill you god take and eat and enjoy we should strive for holiness But holiness is a flood, not an absence. Are you the kind of parent who creates the joys for your children that they never imagined wanting? Does your sun shine, warming the faces of others? Does your rain green the world around you? Do you end your days with anything resembling a sunset? Do you begin with a dawn? 
we say that we'd like to be more like God. So be more thrilled with moonlight and babies and what makes them and holding on to one lover until you've both been aged to wine, ready to pour. Holiness is nothing like a building code. Holiness is 80-year-old hands crafting an apple pie for others again. It is aspen trees in a backlit breeze. It is the fire on the mountain. So speak your joy. Mean it. Sing it. Do it. Push it down into your bones. Let it overflow your banks and flood the lives of others. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. When we are truly like him, the same will be said of us. Wow. God is good, good, good all the time. And when we understand that and when we see that, it transforms everything for us. How we live in the good moments and how we live in the trial and the pain. How we live when we're tempted and how we live when we're excited. How we live out towards others with generosity. How we appreciate everything that we've been given, not holding on to it selfishly, but going, I didn't, it's not mine anyway. It was all a gift, so I'm share it with everyone else for the glory of God and for the good of other people. And when we see the pattern of God, that he's good in everything he does, that every good gift comes from him, we see the greatest gift of all, the love of God in Christ Jesus, nailed to that cross for us, that all our sin, all our guilt, all our shame, all the nonsense and the rubbish that we've ever done is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. That's our generous, loving, good God who delights in you and wants you to walk into the abundance and the fullness of the things of God.